This morning, uh, we are concluding a sermon series in the Gospel of John. Uh, so we are in John 21 uh, today, which is the very last chapter in John. Uh, you can start turning there if you'd like. But it's been a wonderful journey uh, through the Gospel of John. We've seen Jesus' love, his grace, his righteousness, and his justice, his power, uh, poured out all throughout the pages uh, of this Gospel. All with one goal, John tells us, that the reason he's writing all of this is so that we would see Jesus for who he really is. That we would believe in him, and that in believing in him, we would find life, deep, real, lasting, and abundant life. And so, uh, it's with a little bit of mixed feelings that I approach the end of the Gospel of John. I've really enjoyed uh, preaching this story. But if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of the Gospel? Our reading today is from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread, and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. You know, if you look in your bulletin, you can see that, uh, that I've titled the sermon uh, today, The End of the Gospel, which, as sermon titles go, is not especially creative uh, for the last sermon in the last chapter of the gospel. But John tells us in the very last uh, verse of this gospel, in, chapter, in verse 25, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books. That would be written. So truly, we never come to the end of the gospel. The end of God's grace uh, is not something we can ever get to. We never exhaust it. We never explore it enough. We never understand it enough. That in fact, the gospel continues to bear fruit and work itself out. There's more than could be written about what happened in Jesus's life. There's more that's played itself out over the last 2,000 years as God's grace continues to move and to flow and to change lives. But what we do want to talk about is not the, the literal end of the gospel, today, but, but the end is in the goal of the gospel, the purpose behind the gospel. You know, John has told us uh, that the purpose of his gospel is that we would believe and have life in his name, that the, the goal, God's end in the gospel is that people like you and me would come to trust Jesus in his grace and his goodness, and that through that trust, we would find real, deep, abiding life. And so the question uh, for us is we look at this story of Jesus coming to Peter and Peter uh, once again coming to Jesus, finding forgiveness and grace and life. The question we need to ask ourselves is what is it that keeps us from believing and finding our life in the name of Jesus? Right? Maybe for you it's, it's what keeps you from believing at all for the first time. Right? Maybe you're here and you've got deep questions about Christianity, about Jesus, and there's barriers that keep you from trusting him fully and finding your life in him. Amen. But maybe you have trusted Jesus, as tends to be the case in a, in a Christian worship service. Maybe you have trusted him, but what is it that keeps you from believing more into him, from trusting more and finding deeper and deeper life as you rest in Christ? You know, really, since the resurrection... Uh, that great uh, celebration that we had at Easter. Since the resurrection, as Jesus has been revealing himself, that's the word that John uses, Jesus reveals himself to people after his resurrection. He's been revealing himself to people that, that are blocked, that are prevented somehow from something in their life, from really believing in his grace and his resurrection. Right, you remember at first he appeared to Mary. And she literally couldn't see Jesus. She was blinded by tears. In her life, it was her sorrow, it was her pain that kept her from seeing Jesus and from trusting in him and believing in him. And right, and that's the case for some of us. Some of us think to ourselves, uh, if God is as he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, then why have I suffered so much? Why has my life been filled with so much heartache? Why is the world around me? so afflicted with pain. And like Mary, we can't see through the veil of tears to really trust Jesus. Right, then there was Thomas. Remember, we looked at Thomas last week. Thomas couldn't surrender his doubts to something he couldn't see. Remember, he, remember those words, he says, unless I see and put my, my fingers in the holes in his hands and his feet and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. 
Thomas couldn't surrender his doubts to something by faith. He couldn't surrender to something he couldn't see. And for many of us, that's the case. For many of us, it's the, the intellectual questions that we have about the resurrection or about Jesus that keeps us from fully entrusting ourselves to the gospel. But for Peter, for the man that we look at today, Peter was running from Jesus. He was kept from Jesus, not per se because of sorrow or because of doubt, but because of his own shame, uh, because of his own lingering feelings of guilt. You know, Peter had blown it uh, about as badly as someone can. Peter, uh, in the moment of testing, in the moment of Jesus' betrayal and arrest and trial, Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus, that he even knew who he was. This man who had given so much for him, who he'd come to love and befriend. Peter says, I never knew him. And so for Peter, he was kept from trusting in Jesus because of his own sense of shame, his own sense of, well, you know what? It's good that Jesus rose from the dead, but surely he wants nothing more to do with me. It's great that he's still alive, but certainly I'm done. Certainly he doesn't want to give another chance to me. Certainly I don't belong with him and with his followers. And I would venture a guess that for many in the room, that's the sticking point. That's the thing that we choke on or stumble over when it comes to really trusting Jesus. It's knowing ourselves and knowing, you know what? Jesus surely has no love for me. God surely in his holiness and goodness. He, yes, he accepts and loves people, but never somebody with my secrets. Maybe it's never somebody with my past who's done the things that I've done. Maybe it's not somebody with my addictions, somebody with the weakness of will that just keeps stumbling again and again. Maybe it's he never would love somebody with my, my history, with my divorce, with my failure. Maybe it's he would never trust uh, somebody with my lusts or my fantasies or my anger or my greed. And we think, surely this might be good for other people, but I know myself and I know that my shame, my guilt, has, uh, has disqualified me from sharing in what Jesus offers, sharing in what he does. And so we find Peter uh, here in this story. You know, somehow he and the disciples, the last time we saw them, they were in Jerusalem, waiting on Jesus, and he appeared to them behind locked doors. He appeared to them, and yet now when we pick the story back up again, Peter and his disciple friends, they've slipped out of Jerusalem. They're now in the north. They're in Galilee, and they've gone back to fishing. Right? They haven't gone out of Jerusalem in victory and hope and mission like Jesus told them to. We get the impression that they've slinked out away from the suspicion of the Jewish authorities, away from the fervor that was surrounding the, the recent crucifixion of Jesus, that they'd slinked out in fear and they'd gone back to the life that they knew before Jesus. Right? We find Peter uh, and his friends out fishing. They've just tried to go back uh, to life as normal. They were, in a very real way, uh, hiding. You know, Peter's story, Peter's story has gone so differently than he thought it was going to go. Remember, this is Peter who, who, who came to Jesus, and his name was Simon, son of John. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to change your name. You're now going to be Peter, Rock. He literally changed his name to The Rock. 
And he said, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. And Peter took this and, and was, as, as understandable, was thinking pretty highly of himself. Was thinking, yeah, I'm the rock. I'm the strong one. I'm the powerful one. I'm the courageous one. I'm the one that can be trusted and hoped in. I'm the rock. We see that pride in Peter when they're in the upper room and Jesus says to them, every one of you is gonna betray me. And what does Peter say? He says, not me, Jesus. No, not ever. Even if everybody else walks away from you, I will, go to, I will go even to death with you. And as we said, in the moment of testing, in the moment of, of temptation, when he was exposed, he was exposed in weakness. He was exposed to be a fraud. He was exposed to not be very rock-like at all, but rather cowardly and weak-faithed. You know, for most men, uh, this is our worst nightmare. Right, most men, uh, our fantasies, our dreams in life, uh, swirl around coming through when it matters the most. Right, in the moment of exposure, in the moment of testing, we show to the world that we really are strong, that we really are capable, that we really do have what it takes. Right, that's why every little boy, what do we, what do we stand, stand out in the backyard practicing? Game seven of the NBA finals, right? And the shot's coming to you and you've got to make the shot or bottom of the ninth, two outs, bases loaded and you're up to bat. Right? We dream about, in the moment of testing, in the moment of exposure, we're shown to be a hero. And so if that's where most of our dreams lie, most of our nightmares cluster around the idea that in, that in the moment of exposure, in the moment of vulnerability, that we're going to fall flat on our face, that we're going to be exposed as a fraud, as weak and timid. We're gonna, when, when, the, when the big day comes at work and we've got to give the presentation that our career rides on, we're going to fall flat on our face, we're going to blow it. Or when our wife or our family needs us most, we're gonna, we're gonna fail her in some way. Right, we, we fear failure and we run from it. We avoid desperately being in the place where Peter is now, stripped bare, seen from, from, by the entire world, as weak and ashamed. And so Peter uh, runs from Jerusalem. He runs back uh, to his life. And so we wanna look at what does Jesus do for us in that place? How does Jesus meet us in that place of our deepest shame and our deepest guilt? When we're convinced he wants nothing more to do with us, where does Jesus meet us? Amen. Well, the first thing that Jesus does is like Peter, he finds us where we're hiding. He comes to us and he finds us right where we're hiding. You know, Peter and his friends uh, went back to the one thing that he knew how to do. Peter was a fisherman before he was called to be a disciple. And so now he figures, I've blown it as a, as a disciple. I guess I'll go back to being a fisherman. And so he's out there and he's on the lake and he's been fishing all night. He goes back to the only thing he's ever been any good at, which was fishing. And so Jesus calls out to Peter and his friends from the shore. I love the line. He says, children, young men, have you caught any fish? Have you caught anything? Now, what now? What's going on here? Jesus understandably knows whether or not they've caught fish, right? This is, Jesus has always been the, the second person of the Trinity, divine, and, and been possessed of certain power. But now, post-resurrection, Jesus is showing up in locked rooms. He's appearing one minute. He's gone the next minute. He's now, he's now clearly transcended uh, even our normal kind of human existence. And yet he asks them, hey, guys, how's, how's the fishing? Have you caught anything? 
Another, you know, I always feel bad whenever we're walking down the beach. Uh, my children love to find the guys that are out fishing on the shore and run up to them and go, hey, have you caught anything? Can I see what you've caught? And there's a certain dejection that falls on the face of a fisherman uh, when he has to tell, you know, optimistic and excited little boys, no, I haven't caught anything. Or, you know, no, there was, I had a really big one, but it got away. Um, and so Jesus asks, have you caught anything? How's, how's the night of fishing been? Jesus is deliberately, I believe, exposing their failure. He's exposing the fact that Peter went back to the only thing he knew how to do, and he fished all night, and he came up empty. Right, Peter uh, is in the midst of learning the hard way that there is no life for him apart from Jesus. That apart from Jesus, his hiding and his running is always, always, always going to lead him to come up empty. There's this great exchange earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, after a particular difficult teaching of Jesus, when many people are leaving Jesus, they're finding his teaching too difficult to stomach. He turns and he asks his disciples, he asks Peter, all right, are you too now going to leave? And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the very words of eternal life. In other words, he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, where else could we go? We can't leave you. Now that we've tasted your grace and your truth and your goodness, we can never be satisfied with anything else. Now that we know you, we can't leave you. Now that we've tasted what you have to offer, there is no plan B for our lives that will satisfy. And yet when he meets Jesus, when he's there in the boat and Jesus is on the shore, Jesus meets Peter right smack dab in the middle of plan B, of Peter trying to make plan B work for his life, trying to find life apart from Jesus. And so Peter learns what Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from life in me, you can do nothing. We'll always come up empty. You know, this is a good moment uh, for us maybe to stop and to pause and ask a question of our lives, which is this, is are we pursuing our plan B? Have we gotten to a place after trying to follow Jesus, after becoming uh, perhaps exhausted, fed up with our own weakness and our own sin, over believing that we can't possibly measure up, that we've gone and we're trying to do what Peter did. We're trying to fish apart from Jesus. And like Peter and his friends, we stayed up all night and our nets are empty and we're exhausted. Right? Maybe you are today in the middle of trying to pursue plan B for your life, a plan of making your life work apart from Jesus. Or maybe you're looking out and plan B is starting to look pretty good. Right? Maybe you've been, you've been battling the same addictions and the same struggles and the same issues and you're starting to hatch in your mind plans for what you could do as a backup plan. If Jesus doesn't really work out, if his grace proves too good to be true, if it, if it somehow fails you, your backup plan. And what we learn in Jesus' simple question to Peter, if you caught any fish, is that Jesus loves us enough he loves us enough to let us fish all night and come up empty if it means realizing uh, the emptiness of life apart from him. He loves us enough to let our plan Bs hit rock bottom and run on empty. Right, and so he's, this is Peter's moment. This is his prodigal son moment. Remember that moment when the prodigal son looks up from the pig trough in the far country and he says, what am I doing? I'm eating pig food and I had it so good at my father's house. 
where he's run into the emptiness that's at the bottom of the life that he's been pursuing apart from the Father. And Jesus says that he comes to his senses and he goes home. This is that moment for Peter. Maybe today can be that moment for you. When you realize the emptiness of life apart from Jesus and you turn your heart back to the Father's house and you begin the journey home. And so... He says, children, have you caught anything? They embarrassingly say, no, we fished all night, haven't caught anything. And so Jesus says, throw the net onto the left side and you'll catch fish. And they do, they pull it in and there's this miraculous haul of fish. But even, even with, under all of its weight, the weight of these, what John names is 153 fish. I love that they took the time to count them afterwards. That um, <laughs> he says that, that the, fish, the fish didn't burst the nets. Right, and this, this would have called immediately to mind for Peter and for the other disciples, the scene in Luke 5, when they first met Jesus, when Jesus first called them from fishermen to disciples. And he said, brothers, cast your nets, and they did, and they hauled in a, a miraculous catch. You see, Jesus here is, is setting the scene again for Peter. He knows that by now that Peter's a pretty dense guy. And so he resets the scene of his call, of his first invitation to Peter. And in that moment, he hears the voice, he sees the miraculous haul of fish, and John, who calls himself only the beloved disciple, and Peter look at one another, and they say, it's the Lord, it's Jesus, he's calling us again. And so Peter gets dressed, because interestingly enough, he was fishing naked. <laughs> he gets dressed and jumps into the water, not the normal uh, sequence of events, um, <laughs> But only if it were true would you include a detail like that, right? So he gets, he gets dressed, jumps into the water, and swims towards Jesus. This is the moment in the story where, where Peter goes from running from Jesus to running to Jesus. Right? It's the moment in the story where he begins to turn, to turn back towards Jesus. And what's done it? What captivates Peter to turn from running away to running towards it's the same realization that each one of us has to have, which is that Jesus' resurrection, his power, it's true and it's for Peter, right? Peter has come to the realization now that he's seen Jesus and he's heard the invitation, he's heard the call again in his ears, he's come to the realization that Jesus didn't rise from the dead just to come get even with him. Jesus didn't rise from the dead just to come and punish Peter. He didn't rise from the dead to come back to Peter and say, Peter, you are such a coward. How could you abandon me? Look, I'm living. Amen. Right, and there has to come for each of us a moment where we realize that the living Jesus isn't against us, he's for us. That he hasn't leveraged the power of heaven and earth, the, the, the power of the cross and the resurrection. That it's not there just to make us feel terrible about ourselves. It's not there just so that Jesus can judge us that he hears in the voice of Jesus an invitation, the same voice that called him the first time, now knowing the depths of his weakness and his cowardice, calls him again. And Peter says, it is the Lord. And so Jesus finds him where he's hiding, just as he finds each of us. And he calls us to face our failure, just as he does with Peter. He calls us to face our failure, to look it square in the eye, to pretend about nothing, to not pretend that we're better than we are, to not pretend that our deepest shame isn't real or to pretend that it didn't happen. He calls us to face it. 
So after Peter gets to the, to the shore, Jesus presents a meal to the disciples. He restores them and renews them around a meal as he does for his church every single Sunday, restores our fellowship to him around a meal. But then he takes Peter aside one-on-one. John tells us that he does this over a charcoal fire. It's the only, there's two times that the word charcoal fire comes up in the Gospel of John. The first is at the moment of Peter's denial. We're in the courtyard at the trial. He warms himself by a charcoal fire. And now Jesus brings him to a charcoal fire. Just as Peter denied him three times, Jesus asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? By the third time he asks, Peter is hurt and offended. But what he's doing is he's recreating the scene of Peter's deepest failure. He's recreating the moment of his most terrible shame, the moment that Peter thinks he couldn't stand to face, that he has to run from. He builds it for him around a fire, three opportunities. What is Jesus doing here? It feels to us like it's the twisting of the knife, right? It feels cruel. And it is in some ways, but it's the, it's the cut of a surgeon's knife. The knife of someone who cuts in order to heal. Someone who exposes in order to redeem. It calls to mind that time by the well in Samaria that Jesus asked the woman, go and call your husband and come back. And she had to say, I have no husband. And he said, no, you've had five husbands and now the man that you're living with is not your husband. Right, he's not asking for information, he's asking to get us to come clean to get us to admit the truth about ourselves and to lay it bare before him. And so he does, uh, like a skilled surgeon, he reveals this. You know, each one of us uh, has a pretty deep commitment to running from the most painful parts of our lives, uh, to ignoring the most painful parts of our stories, pretending they didn't happen, covering over uh, maybe the most disgraceful elements of our character, the parts of ourselves that were. Uh, convinced that people around us don't want to see. And so we believe that if we take those difficult chapters of our life and sweep them under the rug, that, that everything can be fine. And the sad thing in our culture is that that's often what passes for grace. We believe that grace is simply a sweeping of the unsavory parts under the rug. Right? We apologize to someone, and what do, we say? what do they say? They say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Friends, that is not grace. Grace never minimizes the ugliness of sin. You know, it would have done Peter no good for Jesus to say, you know what, Peter, you're, not, you're actually not that bad. You're not that much of a coward. Anybody would have done what you did. Because deep down, Peter would have known that it's not true, right? That what he did, his cowardice is real and it's abiding and it sits with him. Grace is not the sweeping of our of our sin under the rug, of the folding up of our skeletons into the closet. If sin could be swept under a rug, it wouldn't have had to be nailed to a cross. And the grace of Jesus in the gospel is the good news that the sin that just doesn't seem to stay under the rug and the skeletons that just seem to keep falling out of the closet in our lives have to be dealt with directly. They have to be dealt with in a real way. We have to look them in the eye and admit the full and awful and terrible truth about them and then hand them to Jesus and say, Jesus, these two, 
These two take to your cross with you. Take the ugliest parts of myself. Take the darkest chapters of my story. Cover these two with your blood. And that's what Peter is now seeing. He's now looking it in the eye. He's now been brought by Jesus right back to the scene of the crime. And he's asked these three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The way that he's asking uh, is unique and, and, and reveals something wonderful. The first time that Jesus asks in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The word that he uses for love is agape. Agape, that, uh, the Greek word for the unconditional, powerful love. The love that bears all things, suffers all things, endures all things. The love that covers over a multitude of wrongs. The perfect love that fully and only can be captured in the love of God for his people. That can only fully be seen in the love of Christ on the cross. And he asked Peter, Peter, do you agape? Do you agape me? Do you love me like that? Do you love me with that kind of powerful, committed, never failing, never wavering love? And Peter responds, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. But he says phileo, which is uh, brotherly love, friendship love, affection. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, Jesus, you you know that I love you. You know that I do. But my love is not that kind of love. My love is not that kind of never fails, never wavers, never gives up love. Jesus, you know as well as I do now that my love is a weak love. It's real. I do love you, Jesus. But your love is the real love. Your love is the agape love. And he's now learned that he cannot base his relationship with Jesus on the strength or capacity of his own love. Right? Gone forever has to be the man that says, God, Jesus, I will never betray you. I count on the strength of my love to never let go of you. He's now come to be a man who says, you know what? Your love for me so outstrips my love for you that I'm done bragging. I'm done boasting in how much I love you. Unless you hold on to me with agape love, I'll wander away. So he's done uh, trying to hold himself to Jesus. He's done comparing his love to the love of others. Jesus asked, do you love me more than these, meaning more than the other disciples around you? And the man who said, even when they deny you, I never will has to come to his place where he goes, you know what, Jesus, I don't, <laughs> I don't know about all that. I'm, I'm done comparing myself to, to how much others love you. I'm done trying to measure up and be the, the, the most committed, the most passionate, the most loving. Jesus, I just want to be somebody who knows that you love him and that you hold him, and that's enough for me. I think the, the majority of us, even if we wouldn't say it, functionally, Trust our own affection for Jesus to be the bond that glues us to him. We trust the fervency or consistency of our prayers, our our passion for God, our consistency in evangelism, our love for our neighbors. We look at all of those things as evidence that we're in Christ and that we're good and that God should accept us. And Christianity only works when 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 we, like Peter, come to the end of that, the end of trying to measure up and say, Jesus, I rest in your love. 
I love that in the Gospel of John, John only ever names himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And I think this story is a story of Peter coming to realize that, that his life with Jesus has to be marked more by his status as the beloved, as the one Jesus loves, than it is on his own rock-like strength, having come to the end of that. So Jesus finds us where we hide. He calls us to face our failure. And then, in an amazing and beautiful way, he restores our calling in him to love others. I love this, this, this piece of this story. Three times... Jesus brings him back to the scene of his failure. Three times he asks, Simon, do you love me? Three times Peter says yes. And three times Jesus says, okay, feed my sheep. Tend to my lambs. Feed my lambs. Peter, uh, the one who was called from the very beginning to have a leadership role among the disciples, who was to have a foundational role in the early church, who's certain that he's disqualified himself from all of that, who's absolutely certain that, you know what, even if Jesus somehow took me back, certainly it would be as kind of a sub. You know, I'd be on the B team, I'd be the alternate, but he would never bring me back to a place of usefulness, to a place of leadership, to a place of ministry. And yet I think what's going on here is Jesus is saying to Peter, actually now, now that you've failed, now that you've come to the end of your own love, now that you've come to acknowledge your own weakness, now you're ready. Now you're able to truly tend to my sheep, to truly care for my lambs. That God's grace isn't for the strong or the powerful, the mighty and the smart. It's for those who've blown it time and time again. And in the, in the mystery of God's kingdom, ministry and leadership, or for those who know their own weakness and sin and who know their daily need for God's grace. There's this great story in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where in the moment that Jesus predicts Peter's denial, when he says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, he says to Peter these words. He says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you but I have prayed for you. What a great comfort uh, in the midst of our struggles with sin and temptation that Jesus prays for us. But how much more, what must Jesus have been praying for Peter? Right, it wasn't, I don't believe, that he would be kept from temptation, right? Because Jesus could have kept him from temptation. Right, it's not even that he wouldn't fall into temptation or wouldn't sin. Jesus could have kept him from even falling. But Jesus' prayer for Peter is that in the midst of his temptation, in the midst of his failing, in the midst of his sin and shame, that he would come through on the other side broken and bruised, but knowing and treasuring God's grace, finally equipped and able to love others and extend that grace to others, finally not disqualified but qualified for a role in Jesus' church. And so he calls him, feed my lambs. There's this moment in, in 1 Peter, that's a letter that Peter wrote uh, to an early church. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is giving his advice to other elders, to other pastors. And it's, it, there's some great advice, we won't look at all of it, but he refers to them as shepherds and he tells them to be uh, faithful shepherds to the flock under their care. 
right? He's deliberately using that image that Jesus gave him of care for my little lambs. And he's now taking younger men, new elders, new pastors, and saying, now you guys do what, do what Jesus told me to do, care for his lambs, care for his sheep. And then in verse five, he says this, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is now a seasoned shepherd, a seasoned pastor, who knows in his own life what it feels like to be under the God who opposes pride. Right? God has been so against Peter's pride that he was willing to let him make an absolute mess of his life before restoring him. That's what God's opposition to pride looks like, is that he's willing to let us go the hard way to have our pride broken. So God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, always gives grace to the humble, to the broken, to those who've come to a place where they acknowledge that they need it, to those who acknowledge uh, that they have no hope apart from the grace of God. Sadly, sadly the church, uh, the American church, Uh, that so often resembles America more than it does the church, uh, very often uh, exalts the proud, is preferential towards the proud, and despises the humble and the broken. Right? So often the leaders in the church look like the leaders of the world. They're smart, they're powerful, they're respected. Right? They're, They're admired for their brilliance and their strength and their character. And we look down on those who are humble, those who've stumbled through this life, who've acknowledged uh, and come to Jesus for grace and who recognize they have nothing else to bring but their own weakness and smallness. This story, I believe, is a gift to the church to say this is what qualifies somebody for leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. It's not for the strong, it's not for the wise, it's not for the righteous. It's for those who are willing to go first and to, to publicly acknowledge their sin and their need of God's grace and who are then able to lead a congregation, to lead people to the grace of God. God, by his grace, has provided us with deacons and elders uh, who do know their own frailty and who know their own weakness. And it's a beautiful thing. We pray that he always will. You know, I, in, in closing, I don't, I don't do this often. Uh, it's not, it's not my, my habit to ask people to leave our church. Um, and don't worry, I'm not going to do that by name to anyone today. Um, but please hear this as a disclaimer. If you are checking out churches and trying to decide if we are right for you, um, if you can't bear to be pastored by a sinner, uh, please leave. Um, It's all all we've got. It's all you've got. Um, If you can't bear to be shepherded by elders who are sinners, you can go. Um, Because we don't have guys like that, and that's that's a good thing. I need uh, for you to let me be a normal sinner. Um, and the reason for that is if I can't be a normal sinner then my kids don't get to grow up in a normal house and they, and they feel like they grow up in a fishbowl who have to be perfect kids if I don't get to be a sinful pastor uh, then Haley has to pretend that she doesn't have a sinful husband and that, that, that does not work if I don't get to be a normal sinner, then I, end up as an, then I end up as another isolated pastor with few friends, few people that I can really tell what's going on in my life, uh, and I need that. And so something has to die. The, the, the myth of a sinless, perfect pastor has to die. 
And something better has to take its place, uh, which is if you get a normal sinner as a pastor, you also get a church in which God can use absolutely everyone, where you too get to be a sinner. Not that we celebrate your sin or, or, or you know, encourage it, but that where it's safe to let your mask down and tell the truth about it, where you don't have to hide it. You get to be used by God to, to do great things, to be a real part in pushing back the darkness of this world. And in spite of your sin, and not just in spite of it, but if we look at Peter honestly, because of it, because you know your sin, because you know your brokenness, you belong and you have a place in God's plan. And so let's pray that God would keep us and that he'd help us, that he'd protect us from that part of us that just wants to pretend uh, that we're better than we are and that he would lead us together to his grace every day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as sinners. Um, we, we wish it weren't that way. We've, uh, we've worked so hard for so long and worn ourselves out so much uh, trying to make it somehow different than that. But Lord, we come to you sinful and broken. And Lord, we acknowledge that actually the worst sin in our lives, the only sin that ultimately has the power to damn and destroy us, is the sin of believing uh, that we are outside of your love. The sin of believing that your grace and your love isn't for us and that it doesn't cover our needs and our grace and our need and our brokenness. And so, Lord Jesus, help uh, keep us honest. Help us to be willing to, to walk honestly with one another. Sinful pastors and sinful members, sinful staff, sinful elders and deacons. That together we would help one another uh, limp back to the throne of your grace, to the table of your grace and your communion. Lord, may we never outgrow our belief and our need of your grace and your goodness. Lord Jesus, uh, may we be a church where sinners, sinners like us, find hope and healing and acceptance and mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.